Hello, my name is Tobias Erb. I'm a director of the Max Planck Institute for Terrestrial Microbiology in Marburg, Germany, and I'm a member of the Center for Synthetic Microbiology at the same place. And today I'm going to talk to you about synthetic metabolism. I'm going to start my lecture by showing a range of very different chemical compounds. And even though these compounds look very different, they all share a common principle, and this is that they've been synthesized by synthetic organic chemists. And in fact, the very first molecule to be synthesized by chemists has been this molecule up here, a very simple molecule, conduria. And ever since, chemists have actually synthesized many more different and more complex molecules. And I think it is really true to state that synthetic chemistry has been one of the driving forces of the 20th century. Just if you think how chemistry has changed our lives, think about the different textiles we are able to synthesize with synthetic chemistry, think about different drugs, antibiotics we have been able to synthesize with synthetic chemistry, and think about different materials, for instance, like plastics. So synthetic chemistry has changed our life and has been one of the signs of the 20th century. But I also think that synthetic biology will become the science of the 21st century. And if you think for a moment about biological systems, they have a couple of advantages over chemical synthesis. And one thing is that biological systems are, for instance, self-optimizing which means that they really can improve themselves while they are operating. And that's a concept we would not find in chemistry. Biological systems are self-repairing. Think about catalysts that would be able to repair themselves once they are broke. And biological systems are self-propagating. Again, this is a feature you would not find in classical chemical systems. So there are a couple of advantages biological systems bring with them. And on top of it, biological systems operate in a sustainable fashion and biological systems are also environmentally friendly. So one of the tasks and challenges of synthetic biology is now to really use biological systems to do chemistry, to synthesize new compounds and new products. And today I'm going to show you how we actually can come and reprogram the chemistry of living cells. And we want to do this with a concept that we call synthetic metabolism. So what is the concept of synthetic metabolism? So the idea would be that we start off by designing theoretical pathways basically on the paper or in silico. Then we would go ahead, find and engineer the individual building blocks, the enzymes you would need to build these pathways. We would enter a cycle where we build and optimize the individual synthetic pathways. And finally, we would like to transplant these pathways into cells that would be mini-factories that could produce products for our everyday life. So the central question of today's lectures will be, how do we design such synthetic metabolic networks from scratch? So what are the common design principles we have to use if you want to design metabolism from scratch? The second question would be, how can we realize synthetic metabolic networks in the lab? So how can we come from the in silico, from the design part, to the actual building part? And finally, the last question is, how can we optimize synthetic metabolic networks once we have built them in the lab? So basically improving these systems in the next step. So I'm going to exemplify these questions by talking about research in our lab in which we have tried to establish a process that we will call synthetic CO2 fixation. So what is synthetic CO2 fixation and why are we interested in this process? Well, the answer lies in the air surrounding us. And as you all know, CO2 is a very potent greenhouse gas. And I think we also agree on the fact that the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has been steadily increasing over the last years, decades, even centuries. 
And of course, this has severe consequences. Just think about the phenomenon of global warming. So it's a typical view in looking at CO2 as being a challenge and a threat for science and society. At the same time, we can also look at CO2 being a chance. And being a chance because, in principle, it's a very simple and ubiquitous carbon source that sits out there in the atmosphere. And we as scientists, we as a society, should be able to harvest this molecule and convert it into useful compounds. Yet, we cannot do that. So, in fact, there is no chemical process, no catalyst, no simple chemical process in chemistry that would allow us to harvest atmospheric CO2 and to convert this CO2 in a sustainable fashion into a given multi-carbon compound. And all our chemical efforts are still outcompeted by biology that fixes carbon dioxide on a gigaton scale per year. And I think we all know very well the process of photosynthesis that takes, for instance, place in plants, cyanobacteria, or algae. Yet, biology is not perfect. And it's not perfect because the systems have evolved over time and they were not designed a priori. And one problem, for instance, is that these systems are not running under optimal conditions, so they're not necessarily very fast. And another problem is that, for instance, the product of biological CO2 fixation is biomass. And biomass is not necessarily something that you can directly use in the chemical industry. And this has inspired us now to really rethink biological CO2 fixation. And we've come with the question, so what if? What if you were actually able to find or design new CO2 fixation pathways? Pathways that would allow us, for instance, to convert CO2 directly into interesting product, or pathways that would operate faster than naturally evolved uh, pathways. And this is then what we would uh, consider a name synthetic CO2 fixation. So apparently one critical step in fixing carbon dioxide is to identify enzymes that are fixing ca carbon dioxide efficiently. So the very first step in this project has been to identify enzymes that could fix CO2 very efficiently. This slide reminds you of defining the efficiency of enzymes. So you want to actually have enzymes that have a very high KCAT number, a very high turnover number, which means that they can convert a given substrate molecule uh, at a high speed. So that's one part. The second part is that enzymes should actually have a very low Michaelis constant, a so-called Km value. So this would tell you that these enzymes can actually also operate at very low substrate concentrations. And what you want to have at the end is an enzyme that is operating at a high turnover rate at very low substrate concentrations. And this is what we would then call a catalytically efficient enzyme, so KCAT divided by Km. And think about a moment about CO2 fixation. So carbon dioxide is very low concentrated in the atmosphere, only 0.04%, and you want to have enzymes that can fix carbon dioxide very efficiently at these low concentrations. So one of the first in this project has basically been to identify enzymes that would fix carbon dioxide in an efficient manner under atmospheric concentrations. And so what we've done is, in the first step, is going through biological databases and identify the catalytic efficiency of different enzyme classes. And what we see here is basically different enzyme classes plotted according to the catalytic efficiency. And we are surprised to learn that the enzyme that is used in plants to fix carbon dioxide, Rubisco, is not the most efficient enzyme. In fact, there are other enzymes that can fix carbon dioxide more efficiently. And among these enzymes are so-called enoyl-CoA carboxylases, reductases, or short ECRs. And these enzymes are actually up to four times more efficient than Rubisco the enzyme that is used in plant photosynthesis. So what are these enzymes? 
Well, the prime example is the so-called crotonucleic carboxylase reductase that basically takes a molecule crotonucleic A, reduces this molecule of crotonucleic A with an ADPHS cofactor, and introduces a CO2 molecule to give rise to the carboxylated product ethylmonucleic A. It's a very nice principle to be used, but it's only one reaction. And ideally, you want to have actually multiple reactions. You want to have a set of enzymes that can do very different carboxylation reactions. And one of our first efforts has actually been to open up and expand the biosynthetic space of this class of enzymes. So we've asked the question, can we now fit other substrate into the active side of these enzymes? Can we expand the substrate scope, the substrate spectrum of these enzymes to catalyze other reactions just besides cotonyl-CoA? And so we've addressed this in two different approaches. One way has been we've used enzyme engineering. So we've used crystal structures of the enzyme We've looked at the active side pocket of these enzymes, and we've tried to open the active side pockets so that other substrates could fit in. And another approach has been to use genomic mining, which means that you go ahead and you just screen the biological diversity of this class of enzymes. So in other words, you use the phylogenetic tree of these enzymes, then you synthesize 30, 50, 100 different variants, and you simply test the substrate spectrum of these different enzymes. So with these two approaches, we were actually able to identify a set of enzymes that catalyzes very different carboxylation reactions. So we can now have enzymes that catalyze short substrates, we can have enzymes that can carboxylate longer substrates, branched substrates, bulky substrates, different decorated substrates. Or in other words, we have now a set of enzymes at hand that can carboxylate with high efficiency very different reactions. So how can we now use these enzymes to build synthetic C2 fixation pathways? How can we come from an individual enzyme reaction to a complete pathway? And this is now the second part of my talk where I want to show you how we can design synthetic metabolic networks from first principles. So what we do in the lab is we simply start with a blank piece of paper and we start to draw artificial synthetic theoretical pathways. And all these pathways are very different, but all these pathways are centered on an individual uh, ECR reaction. And even though these pathways have different topologies, and even though these pathways have different intermediates, they also share some common principles. And one principle is that all these pathways are actually cycles. What does it mean? Well, basically, the product of a carboxylation reaction is turned back to become the substrate of the carboxylation reaction. And this way, you can basically run, in a continuous fashion, carbon dioxide fixation, which means you can really fix carbon dioxide continuously. That's a principle of a metabolic cycle. So another common principle is that all these pathways are, again, based on an ECR reaction. And the third principle is that all these pathways have a carbon splitting reaction, for instance, shown here, where you can take off some of the fixed carbon and you can shuttle this carbon into an interesting biotechnological compound or biological building block. Again, these are theoretical cycles. Don't forget, at this stage of the design, we don't have any specific enzymes in mind besides the ECR reaction. We just think about potential transformations. We just think about oxidations, potential oxidations. We think about potential reduction reactions. We think about potential CC splitting reactions. We think about potential hydrations or dehydration reactions. So these are all theoretical enzymes that might exist. So from this design, 
you actually also have to decide which of these cycles is now a really good cycle. So you need to evaluate the different cycles you have drawn. And so we've used simple chemical criteria to decide which of these cycles is actually the best cycle to be realized. And one of the important criteria is here, you need to have cycles that are kinetically favored. This means you want to have cycles where you actually have fast and efficient enzyme reactions involved. So all the individual reactions you would like to apply in your cycle should be fast and efficient, which would allow us to run the cycle in an efficient manner. A second criterion is actually a thermodynamic criterion. So all the cycles should be thermodynamic favored, which means you need to think how much energy per CO2 molecule fixed do you have to spend. And so we've done this calculation, for instance, for the catch cycle shown here. So the catch cycle can turn two times to produce one molecule of pyruvate. And while turning two times, it actually has to spend four ATPs for one pyruvate molecule fixed from CO2. Now you can compare this ATP efficiency uh, with natural existing pathways. And you can actually see that the Calvin cycle, uh, the pathway that is used by plants, bacteria, and algae in photosynthesis, uses 7 ATP per CO2. So in other words, the synthetic solution from the lab is almost twice as energy efficient in terms of ATP usage. So it tells you already that you actually can come up with solutions which are more ATP efficient than naturally evolved uh, systems. And finally, the last criterion you want to actually apply is the criterion of thermodynamic feasibility. So you want to make sure that all the reactions you want to apply in your cycle have a favorable thermodynamic equilibrium. So in other words, the concentration and the equilibrium of the, of the reaction should lie on the side of the product formation. In other words, the free energy profile across the reaction should be negative, and this would allow you to turn the cycle in a clockwise fashion efficiently without any major harms. So having identified and, and uh, evaluated the cycles, we came up with the idea that the catch cycle that fulfills all these three criteria would be a very good starting point to build now synthetic C2 fixation in the lab. So this brings me now to the second part. We want to tell you how we can now realize such synthetic metabolic networks from first principles. So on the one hand, we now have this theoretical cycle that we've drawn on the paper and that we've evaluated. On the other hand, we actually want to realize this cycle and build the cycle, which means we need to find all the individual biological parts. And a network, a metabolic network like the catch cycle, that features 15 different reactions means that you need to find 15 different enzymes that could do all the different transformations. So what can you do? You basically can go back and you can go through different databases. You have like Brenda, CAG, Stranda, or PubMed to find enzymes that would do one or the other transformation. So right now we have more than 50 million annotated genes and databases. And with more than 40,000 characterized enzymes in databases, so the chances are very high that you would find the enzyme reaction somewhere. Of course, you still need to express the enzyme, you need to purify the enzyme, and you need to test the enzyme. But in, in, ideally, you can find a lot of enzymes in these databases. Yet sometimes you find an enzyme in the database, but it does not have the properties it should have. And this is shown here, where we are looking for an enzyme that could catalyze this reaction up here which is a dehydration reaction of a compound called fluorhydroxybutyric-CoA. So in fact, there has been an enzyme that was deposited in the database. The problem is that this enzyme is highly oxygen sensitive and actually dies away within 15 or 20 minutes, it loses its activity. 
So how can you overcome this problem? How can you find a better biological part? Well, one strategy is that you simply go ahead and you screen for biological diversity. So in other words, you try to express and test homologs of this enzyme. And so lo and behold, by using this strategy, we identified an homolog in a marine archaeon called Nidosopomenus maritimus, which shared 50 or 60% of sequence identity, but was approximately 100 times more stable under oxy conditions. So looking for biological parts and screening different enzyme homologs can help you identify enzymes. But sometimes you have the problem that you would like to employ a certain enzyme reaction, but you actually don't have an enzyme in the database. And this is shown here, where you want to use a reaction in which a compound called methylsaxonyl-CoA is oxidized to become a compound called mesoconyl-CoA. Well, there had been enzymes described that can do this chemistry. The problem is that these enzymes are so-called dehydrogenases. And these dehydrogenases are very complicated enzymes because they oxidize the substrate, put the electrons onto a cofactor, and from this cofactor, the electrons are put on a second protein called electron transfer flavoprotein, and from there on, the electrons are put into a membrane-bound respiratory chain. So in other words, if you want to use this kind of chemistry, you need not only the enzyme, but you also need its interaction partner, and you need a membrane-bound respiratory chain, which is awfully complicated. So in this case, it might be helpful if you simply shortcut this whole electron transfer relay. And what we intended to do is to convert this methylsoxonyl-CoA dehydrogenase into a methylsoxonyl-CoA oxidase, an enzyme that could directly use oxygen instead of having this complicated electron transfer chemistry. So what you need to do here is you need to look into the active side of the enzyme and you need to think about ways how to, for instance, accommodate an oxygen molecule there. So you can open up the active side by creating a bit more uh, space. You can think about adopting and kind of uh, allowing for negatively charged to be developed, so putting more positively charged amino acids on the active side. And then you simply can go ahead and can test different active site mutations. And when we did this, we actually ended up and identified a triple mutant that could indeed uh, uh, catalyze the direct oxidation of methylsaxonyl-CoA in the presence of molecular oxygen. Or in other words, what we did here is, is we basically created our own enzyme for our own pathway. The question now is, at the end of the day, we had to identify 15 different enzymes from very different organisms. So we had enzymes in there from Methylobacterium extorquens. It's a plant uh, organism, plant-associated organism. We had enzymes that we would take from Rhodobacter spheroides, an organism we would find in ponds. We would have enzymes that we have taken from Clostridium, which is a human pathogen. We have enzymes that were from E. coli, a well-known lab organism. We would actually have enzymes from Nitrosolus pumilus maritimus and marine archaeon, and even an enzyme from the human liver. And on top of it, our re-engineered enzyme that catalyzes the oxidation of methyl saxonyl The big question is now, can you bring all these enzymes together and would they be able to fix carbon dioxide in an efficient manner? So we've done the experiment. So we've used an Eppendorf cup and we've simply piped all 15 enzymes into this Eppendorf. We've added ATP and NADPH and we've also added this green compound down here, which is called propionyl-CoA. The idea being if the cycle is active, it would start to turn. And for each time it starts to turn, it would actually accumulate a compound called malate, which would be the direct carboxylation product. So in other words, if you follow malate concentration over time, we would be able to see if the cycle is active or not. And as you can see here, indeed, 
we could demonstrate that the catch cycle fixes carbon dioxide over time, and actually at a rate of 0.2 CO2 molecules per acceptor an hour. And this really demonstrates to you that you can come up with a theoretical pathway on the paper, you can look for the different enzymes, or even engineer your own enzymes, you can bring these enzymes together, and such a cycle would be functional. So you can design a biological systems just by using chemical criteria. Yet I hope you also realize that the cycle is not turning perfectly. So the rate is actually per acceptor and hour, and we all know that biological systems are operating at smaller time scales, so they should be operating per minute or per second. So the question here now is, why is the cycle not turning faster? So in other words, which design principle did we miss? And this brings me to the second part of my talk, where I want to tell you how we can optimize such synthetic metabolic networks by including biological design principles. Or in other words, it's not enough to think about the biochemistry and the chemistry of enzymes and metabolic networks, but it's also important to think about the biology. So revising a question, why is the cycle not turning faster? What actually limits CO2 fixation efficiency of the cycle? And the answer is very simple, and the answer is not very surprising. The point is that we've brought together very different enzymes from very different biological backgrounds. And these enzymes do not have a common evolutionary history, and these enzymes have not co-evolved together in this network, and these enzymes are doing things they're not supposed to do. In other words, these enzymes do side reactions. And the whole metabolic network accumulates dead-end products like malyl-CoA, or for instance, like malonyl-CoA. So to optimize now C2 fixation efficiency, what we have to do is we have to go back and we have to debug the system. So we have to teach the system to be more specific. We have to teach the enzymes to work together. And we can apply very different principles. So one principle would, for instance, be that we can add more complexity to the system. So remember, I talked about this compound called malyl-CoA, which is a dead-end metabolite and which holds the cycle back from turning more efficiently. So there might be a way to actually remove this dead-end compound by adding another enzyme, which is so-called thioesterase. And this thioesterase would cleave malyl-CoA into malate, this is shown here, and it would release the CoA residue, which could be fit back into the cycle. So in other words, by increasing complexity of the cycle, by adding an additional enzyme that would proofread and scavenge and recycle the standard metabolite, we would be able to improve uh, CO2 fixation efficiency. And in fact, what you can see as soon as you add this thioesterase, you ramp up CO2 fixation efficiency. I think this is a very important principle, this metabolic proofreading, that we can use in synthetic biology, but I think it's also important to realize that in many biological systems, such metabolic proofreading principles are also operating. So that's one way, metabolite proofreading, to improve efficiency. Another way we can, we can use is basically redesign original strategy. And we have used this, for instance, to circumvent the reaction from propionyl-CoA to this compound here called methylmalyl-CoA. This was not a reaction that we could use because it made too many problems. So we had to go back and detour the whole reaction by going through a compound called acrylic-CoA and from there on then back to this compound methylmalyl-CoA. So pathway redesign was very useful to us to identify enzymes that could do the job. And one other part of this design principle is, of course, to engineer enzymes to be more specific. And we've used this, for instance, to improve and get rid of a side reaction up here. So in other words, pathway redesign and enzyme engineering can help us also to improve CO2 fixation efficiently again. 
And finally, playing around with the physical conditions, for instance, improving and optimizing buffer concentration and playing around with ionic strength can also help us then to finally speed up uh, CO2 fixation efficiency. So at the end of the day, without changing the chemistry of this cycle, just by simply optimizing the enzymes by adding metabolic proofreading, enzyme engineering and pathway, slide pathway redesign, we ended up with a cycle which was now turning at a rate of 3.6 CO2 molecules per acceptance hour. So in other words, implementing biologically assigned principles has helped us to increase CO2 fixation efficiency of the whole system by almost a factor of 20. I guess what I wanted to say here is that you can really think about having really good individual players. You can really think about getting the best enzymes together. And it's a little bit like the Dutch national team. They're really good individual players, but at the end of the day, you need to form a team if you want to win championships. So in other words, it's not only important to think about the chemistry and the biochemistry of the enzymes, but it's also important to think about the enzymes working together efficiently. So this is where we're standing right now with the catch cycle in version 5.4. The catch cycle now features 17 different enzymes from nine different organisms and includes now three re-engineered enzymes. And it fixes carbon dioxide of a rate of five nanomoles per minute and milligram of protein. And this is actually something that you would be able to measure if you, for instance, tried to measure other CO2-fixing, natural CO2-fixing organisms in vitro. So with this system, we are almost very close to biological reality, at least in vitro. Of course, the catch size is not in its version 5.4, the last version, but I think it's, a, it's not the end. I think it's a starting point for several research directions. And one thing we now can do is entering the so-called design, build, test and analyze cycle, which is a classical improvement uh, that you can use in synthetic biology. So the idea would be here now to test different principles. So where are the boundary conditions of our system? How much can it be improved when you optimize enzyme concentrations and metabolite concentrations? How can it be improved when you, for instance, add allosteric regulation? Can it be improved if we try to implement metabolite channeling? And would it actually be improved if we, for instance, try to implement something like compartmentalization. And I think through iterative rounds of reconstructing the system and by changing parameters, we'd be able to improve the catch cycle even further. What are the next steps once we have improved catch cycle? So one idea would be to use the cycle in a true bottom-up fashion. So using this as a metabolic module that we, for instance, could use to implement into cell or cell-like structures, artificial cells, membranes, liposomes, where we can, for instance, feed in light, where we can feed in hydrogen or electricity, where we can energize the system and use our metabolic module to fix carbon dioxide. If you want to say so, for instance, developing an artificial organelle, an artificial chloroplast. And of course, another thing we can do is we can try to implement and try to transplant the catch cycle in a top-down fashion into living systems. So the in vivo transplantation is one of the big challenges that lies ahead of us. I hope you can also understand that a complex network like the catch cycle that consists of 17 different enzymes might not be very easily transplanted into a living system that features 3,000 different reactions. And we expect this will be a challenge of synthetic biology. Okay, so this is the end of my lecture. I hope I could show you that synthetic metabolism is really something that we can achieve in future in, in, in synthetic biology. I hope I can show you that synthetic metabolism is built on the concept of being freely able to choose and design theoretical pathways on the paper. I hope I could show you that synthetic biology involves finding engineering enzymes to, uh, to realize this uh, cycle in the lab. 
but it also involves building an optimization of the pathway sequence in iterative rounds. Now we could show you that one of the future steps in genetic metabolism will be to transplant such artificial cycles into living cells, let it be natural or artificial cells. That's the end of my talk. And I would not be standing here without a great number of great scientists in my lab. I just want to highlight Thomas Schwander, who actually built the catch cycle as first proof of principle. I want to highlight those people who have been optimizing the uh, biochemistry of Enrico Ikaboxylase reductases. Of course, you should not forget the funding agencies, and I thank you for your attention.